Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Collect and Spec podcast, the podcast all about the world of collectibles, technology, and entrepreneurship. I'm one of your hosts, Zakiel, otherwise known as Rainy Day Collectibles Online. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Chris, otherwise known as Wolf of Tinstry. How's it going? Going well. How's it been going for you this last week, my man? Good, good. Um, winding down, post-Thanksgiving, pre-Christmas, just kind of feel like everyone's just counting the days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm doing really well. I, uh, formalizing HR stuff and just time off and I took half of November off and apparently I still have another seven full holidays that I've got to figure out when I want to take them. So, um, yeah, I realized I hadn't taken a day off until October 12th (laughs) and, uh, it turns out I had a lot of time built up. So, uh, I mean, awesome. I just, I literally, if I take the day off, I'm going to be sitting at my computer doing the same thing I would be doing if I was at work. So I'm just kind of like, use it or lose it. So good nice. problems to have nice nice yeah. and i think we talked about this briefly last cast but recently married so how was uh two weeks into that any and you feel any different <laughs> nothing's changed i you know when when you date somebody for seven years and then you get married afterwards you i, I don't want to say take it slow because we're you know still 25 but sure. uh, i don't know it's solid i get to wear it with a purpose now so uh, yeah it's nice it's it's nice honestly to have that stress over with and just have it locked down for everyone so it's been congratulations again thank you um this episode is going to be primarily on reinvestment when you uh, have profits in your business or you have profits in your side hobby or whatever how we kind of go about uh, navigating the different options that you have Uh, and then quick note i know the collector's universe acquisition happened we are going to hold that discussion off probably for another couple of days, if not a week, um, just as more information comes out and we will have an episode dedicated to that. So I'm very excited for that conversation, but it is not this episode. Um, but anyway, going before we get into the talk about reinvestment, let's start with our first topic uh, every week, which is Wolf's Weekly Insight. So what's going on in the data this week? So uh, this week, I mean, it, it really just is vivid voltage ruling the day. Uh, it's literally all the full arts. Uh, weirdly enough, I, I, I say weirdly, I like the look of it, but the, the Alakazam V is by far the best selling, even though that price point's a, a little lower than I think um, some might like. It's only around that $5 mark. But uh, what's really fascinating to me too is on TCG, we're actually starting to see more and more, even with the older sets, although there's still a lot of um, discrepancies, but the market average versus what, actually is selling is starting to get closer and closer together finally and what i mean by that is like if you look for something like uh gengar sabrina's gengar right now i believe or yeah um on tcg player it'll say like 40 dollars is the lowest dollar copy that you can buy but then it'll say like the last copy bought was bought at like three dollars and 49 cents so you know which is it <laughs> what is the value of this card more and more we're starting to see those cards reach more of a, an equilibrium of moving in the right direction uh, in terms of like the last sold copy is $25 uh, but the lowest listing you can buy is now 30 and it's just getting smaller and smaller which i kind of find really reassuring <laughs> i think that's a healthy thing i think that's a little bit overdue it's just nice to see um basically supply is beginning to to meet demand or at least people are cooling off or whatever it is um it's happening so i find that a little uplifting on the the raw side 
in terms of like the higher end raw stuff, Charizard VMAX out of Champion's Path definitely is still ruling the day. That Pikachu VMAX out of Vivid Voltage is still right behind it. Uh, and then you got the Charizard V, the secret one, M Charizard. Uh, one curious one that I thought was kind of cool. <laughs> it's not very real, but is uh, Typhlosion out of Neo Genesis. Somebody's definitely trying to, to pump the numbers on this one. Is uh, it the T17 or the other one? Yeah, it's the 17. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, somebody is definitely trying to create a little little scarcity around that one. Uh, but uh, outside of that, I mean, really, it really is the Charizard. Uh, I found it interesting. I believe there's a Rayquaza in the most recent Vivid Voltage, or am I incorrect on that? Um, uh, that is seeing some good numbers. No, I don't know if I'm correct on that. I just saw that there was... I might do that when I when I pass the segment over to you. Um, but, you know, just fascinating information to see, too, how um, basically cards are doing outside of the most recent set in Pokemon. Because uh, you see this, this is a very classic TCG paradigm wherein sales rate will be dominated by the most recent set. Uh, and every now and then you'll see older cards uh, kind of sticking into it. Now, for other games, like we'll say Yu-Gi-Oh!, where you have different play formats, you can you can really spot the reasons why. Whereas with Pokemon, it's kind of hard to to do kind of hard to do that to explain why it's there outside of looks like somebody's trying to buy up some of these older cards and send them in to get graded. Versus this is just the newest and coolest thing. Uh, that's really what dominates it. So uh, this week it was really just vivid voltage. I mean, people are desperate to get their hands on this, uh, and it's just kind of cool to see it played out in the data. Um, that those kind of classic TCG trends are, are finally taking a little bit more shape with Pokemon as opposed to just seeing all this older stuff being bought out. I know, completely agree. Um, I know the T17 Typhlosion has seen a lot of volatility because the graded pricing, it's very difficult to grade. Like this historically mm -hmm. has just really, really difficult problem with print lines. Um, and I think the unlimited PSA 10 recently sold for some crazy amount of number i think maybe over 10k um earlier this year tca gaming i think paid 12 to 15k for the oh first, my god for the first edition one um because the pop on this is like incredibly small let me take a look really quick um, um come on Come on, Zakiel. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, the the P total number of PSA ten Typhlosions T seventeens. There's only nine in the world. In PSA ten. Okay. There so are, that definitely. Uh, Six hundred and twenty eight yeah. total graded, and only nine of them are tens. Yeah, that explains why the the average for the last sold one on TCG is about thirty five dollars, but the the next lowest asking price is one hundred and thirty five. So. Uh, these are the things that we would ideally like to be to kind of play out and average out over time. And there's um, only four unlimited PSA tens. I just I, I enjoyed your eyebrows go up there. <laughs> there's only four. There's been 265 graded of the T17 unlimited and only four. So the unlimited is actually rarer than the first edition at pop wise, but you know, not yeah. Really. Yeah. We, we've talked about, I know I've talked about that. So I'll, I'll get back on my shadow list yeah. mantra of <laughs> what should and should not be. Um, but yeah, the other thing too is, and again, we mentioned this uh, last week, the 
the, the sales rate for the graded stuff, specifically PSA 10 stuff, this past week and a half to two weeks. Uh, and this could also, as I contextualize it a bit in my head, I should have thought of this before cast, but Black Friday sales. I mean, if you were going to spend money, you're probably buying presents in the past two weeks. So the number of just PSA 10 cards over that $1,000 threshold that have sold has really slowed down uh, compared to usual. Um, and especially I thought was kind of interesting. The ones that are selling are almost all auctions. Like the bins, the buy it nows, they're, if you're trying to sell one over a thousand and it's PSA 10 right now, you're not, you, you should go ahead and auction that instead. I don't know how you want to start that low bid, but the, the likelihood of selling it and just the interest uh, definitely seems to be, at least on eBay, that people like to race each other. So. Let's let's take a moment to talk about that. One of the one of the cyclical trends that we see in collectibles is kind of counterintuitive to the toy markets, or, or kind of I get not counterintuitive, but counter counterweighted, I guess. Q four of most retailers, uh, you know, business models are like Christmas sales, Black Friday, and Christmas sales is when everyone is going out to buy toys, right? Yeah. But there's always a lull in TCG sales and in pricing every year that I've been a part of, of every market uh, from Christmas basically until tax season. And then once tax season picks up, it's like another, whatever, a 20% spike across the board because now everyone gets their money and whatever, they pay their back taxes or whatever it is. Why do you think that is? I mean, I think it's the holidays, Christmas presents, because I mean, I, I have a secret Santa thing that I got to do for work that I've forgotten three times. And I know I'm going to have to put money into that eventually, <laughs> because it's literally I, I'll get to like the checkout aisle, like online, like looking at cards or something that I want to buy. And I'll be like, wait a second. I haven't bought anything for my entire family. <laughs> then I'll go spend four or five hundred dollars elsewhere and I'll come back and I'll be like, no, not today. And then obviously, if I don't do it today, I'm going to forget about it for two or three days and then I'll basically see something new and shiny and think, oh, I should buy that. Oh, but I haven't bought this person a present kind of deal. Uh, just kind of cyclical. And then um, even though when you get your tax return, it's your own money, a lot of people see it as free money. Uh, and so whatever card you've, you've kind of been ogling or whatever deck that you've been thinking that you want to build over those months where you're constantly like, I want to buy it. I keep forgetting. I want to buy it. I keep forgetting whatever it is. You usually find that like PA State Resistance card or whatever it is foil uh, Aminadu Lily just saying um and you just go out and you'll you'll buy that high-priced card um uh <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that but I did I don't, I don't uh, know that card <laughs> but I mean it's it's just what people do and you just see this trend of sales um and it, you actually see something uh which I would actually imagine is probably the same for toy companies as it is for for us selling cards is in the summer you see kind of another lull when people start spending money on vacations and, and going out and and basically getting outside the house which obviously we all didn't get this year which is kind of what makes it so fascinating is that it really does go against that uh, seasonal trend that we've just seen probably the last two decades easily if not longer well yeah that's that's a really good point now that you actually say that because i think tabletop games in general excel in the spring and i mean i really through the winter but from like from like october through may mm -hmm. but like the summertime i'm i'm like you know i'm outside i'm not yeah. i'm not playing i'm not even playing magic in the summer like and i play magic every day no things <laughs> and i'm doing people want to you know be outside and moving and grooving and 
it's just interesting that because everyone has been locked inside, that is just another testament to people's interests over the past couple of months is like, yeah, obviously, obviously there's been a lot of speculative movement in these markets, but all of it's just kind of like a natural progression of, Hey, I'm inside. Like I'm just going to enjoy the things that I enjoy. And they happen to be, you know, trading card games. The other thing too, is I think it was the 0809 board games were actually really resilient because people are staying inside. We don't want to spend money. So, I mean, in this instance, you kind of have double, it's like a compounding effect of like everyone's staying inside because you have to, and there's a recession. So you've got to try and put your money into something that will generate value again and again, as opposed to models where like, um, you know, TCGs where you keep putting money in and it doesn't really keep playing because you lose your attention for a deck, you lose your desire for it, whatever it is. You buy a Monopoly. I mean, that sucker is going to last you for four hours every night that you play it. Yeah. Um, and depending on your set, but you know, you get Settlers of Catan, you get all these different board games, so you can switch it up. I mean, I used to, during my college days, because I was so cool, go to the cafes that had the most board games, you know, uh, Betrayal in the House and that, like, because these are things that you can sit down and for five hours, the cost is going to be the coffee or the milkshakes that you drink while you play. Yeah. Um, which, again, so, I mean, it's also probably helping um like the the tcgs a little bit if you're bogged down with somebody who plays but like that tournament scene is definitely definitely gone but uh yeah quick note that is a huge seattle thing like board games and like seattle's like such a coffee city but like the board game thing is so big here there are i mean discounting like forget mock sporting house and, and all that stuff just like the normal average coffee shop is either uh coffee and books coffee and tabletop games or just like coffee and quiet i guess but but like the board game like it's huge people love that stuff i completely i've done it like i, I completely get it i always feel like it's a college vibe thing you have the cool people who go out and party and then you got all the other people who are like i like to stay sober on my friday nights i'm gonna go play a board game that requires me to think or i'm gonna sit in a room and play league of legends with four other guys for nine straight hours because that's who we are i think it's also a tech thing like yeah things that people who are involved in tech there's like a huge crossover from like these kind of like critical thinking skills if i guess if that is appropriate (laughs) and uh uh, no, it's like, yeah, like it was just a, it's a town, like with a bunch of software engineers, product managers, data scientists, where it's like, Hey, um, many of which still drink quite a bit, but, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, it's huge. Like the crossover for like the, all kinds of tabletop games and D and D and like all this stuff is certainly, it's very real. Oh yeah. I'll be, f- I'm going to be so fascinated for mysterious reasons, uh, with D and D in the next year and how that ties in with other things mm-hmm. um i think that's gonna be i think that's gonna be really cool and really fun to watch but yeah long story short i mean it's just repeatable source of value when people become conscious about the value that they're getting from their dollar you retreat to more stable things that have a singular buy-in as opposed to constant add-ons the same reason why i i've been using the same crossword app because i don't have to pay for every new crossword or something like that it's just something that consistently generates value to my time uh, as opposed to I've got a new deck for a month. I'm going to sell it back and buy a new one, sell it back and buy a new one, sell it back and buy a new one. It's just not going to happen. Um, at the same time, that's not exactly what we've seen with Pokemon, <laughs> but I think yeah. we've covered that just in terms of just the massive amount of cash that could not be spent elsewhere. 
um, that just kind of got funneled into that nostalgia. And I, I really do feel like it's a snowball that just started going. Because, uh, I mean, you mentioned precast. I mean, why haven't we seen this with others? Uh, I really just think the snowball down the, the mountain was just the classic like metaphor that I would use for Pokemon versus something like Yu-Gi-Oh. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I agree. Um, it's interesting. One, um, I don't want to interrupt your, uh, mm. do you have any other things as far as data you want to talk about? No, go nuts. Um, the one thing that I have noticed as far as modern Pokemon, specifically in Hidden Fates, um, is that I think there's like the critical mass of supply has happened. So now you can, the the PSA and 10 pricing of both, one, one, the hype has died down, but two, supply is like, this set came out 2019, uh, the graded populations are starting to fill out every day um, and you're able to buy the entire PSA 10, you know, shiny vault set for like $10,000, which is just a testament to like, like this wow. has been almost overgraded, I think, <laughs> um, which is interesting. Like, I think there's a conversation for maybe not necessarily, come on, not necessarily a bubble because of pure interest uh and like prices being driven up which we've already seen retraces and i think we're going to continue to do so like we talked last week mm -hmm. there's also something um something to be said for as we've also been talking about which is what percentage wow. of people who are in this are just strictly investors and how many people are like actually collectors where grading only really works if you want to keep the slabs <laughs> like you have to crack the slabs otherwise you're not there's not really any value in that man hidden fates you've got like one card there that's worth over ten dollars but of the like the rares hollow rares secret layers whatever rares it is that secret secret layers. yeah <laughs> yeah sorry I, I the terminology man i'm sorry sure, sure, sure. um the, the hidden that's what is it just... called the shiny vault or no you so everything that's not in shiny vault is what you're saying yeah. So like, I'm looking, the only card that I see in this set that would remotely interest me would be the, and there's a Charizard in this set. <laughs> this is the Moltres Zapdos and Articuno GX secret. Um, the, yeah, the Charizard GX is a little bit behind it, but wowza. That's, that's, um, that's a lot of 20 cent cards in that. Yeah. Well, and that's because of the, the shiny vault subset, right? Yeah. Cause everyone is cracking for these cards. It, it drives everything down. Which, you know, to some extent is like, sure, that's good. But one of the things I, we did notice previously, and we'll, and we'll move on to our main topic here, is that uh, I think there's still some opportunity f for uh, the delta between raw and graded in a lot of these cards. It's just the turnaround, the turnaround time from PSA or Beckett or wherever you want to go is so long that I... Ex so I accidentally submitted something economy when I went meant to send it regular. It's like probably like... $25,000 worth of cards. I was like, damn it. <laughs> um, which is fine. It'll get done at some point. But like, the question is like, how many people actually want a PSA 10 shiny Charizard? Yeah. So if we, if we have a thousand in the pop, it's only, it's only going to continue to go up just from people who are, you know, passively doing it as collectors just for fun. What happens? Like, is it, it, it does like, realistically the market pricing should be the price of the rock card plus a very small premium for a graded 10 meaning if you can just open up packs and the, you you assume yeah. one out of three is centering is good whatever but because of the scarcity of shiny 
of the the shiny cards and the shiny vault and hidden fates obviously there's a larger premium but i'm that's something i'm continuing to monitor right if you can still yeah. get the card for 600 raw then it only costs you 30 dollars to grade it why is it 1100 dollars, right yeah so we'll see yeah yeah i i totally agree with you i think raw is still way undervalued and i think graded is either in a good place or a little too high but either way where are you gonna be we'll see we'll see by the way you say who wants to collect it and i have a drawer full of onyxes so we got weird people out there who are willing to do this you're you're not wrong you're not i think i, I actually did i open one anyway um going into our main topic today kind of reinvestment I, i'll let you start this conversation so reinvestment of our profits um i often call this like capital allocation like as you as you reinvest back within your business you let's say you make 20% margin, you're selling something just in simplest terms, $100 or $120, your cost basis is 100, you take home 20. Very simplest mm -hmm. terms. What do you then do with that 20%? So for me, I've definitely done things a little bit differently than you. And I'm going to tell you right now, I think the way that you do it is way better. It's better from the start. Um, because, well, no, because I was basically getting involved with TCGs at a time where I shouldn't have been. I was not financially secure enough to be doing it. I'm um, a bit of a hypocrite when I tell people this because I learned this stuff just in TCGs and, and whatever it is. Um, but just coming from that background, uh, I was investing way too much initially into products and not enough liquidity in my bank account. So when I sold it initially, I wasn't even keeping track of basically it was just I knew that I put in X amount into whatever website it was, TCG, whatever it was, and that I knew that it was coming back on this day and I knew it was 30% more than I had initially put in. And I was just happy that more was coming back for the longest time, yeah. but I wasn't actually tracking the profits and I was just paying my bills with whatever came back. Uh, probably for about the first year. And then I realized I was basically spinning my wheels because I was never gaining traction and I was only had the same amount to actually put back into the TCG market at the end of the day because I, it just wasn't organized enough. Um, now, if you see my behemoth of a spreadsheet, I got, I got a little bit better. But then it became basically, okay, I was going to put 10% away and either basically... Um, into I created a separate PayPal account. So when all of my funds came back, they would go into this and then I could track very clearly what came into this one account. And I would take 10% of the profit off of what I knew I invested that month. And I would basically treat that as like, that's my bonus for doing, for doing what I do. Keep, continue to help pay for bills. Uh, and it really forced me to pull back on my spending at first because I needed to build up that snowball. And that's really the way I still do it. I, I always shoot for that 30% profit margin. And at the end of the month, I'll pull 10% back out and I leave that 20% in my, basically my spend account uh, to continue to build up momentum, build up momentum, build up momentum. Um, I think the smarter move, if you really wanna treat it as a business is to put it all back in and continue to, to roll it and roll it. Cause I think you begin to maximize the effects of your profit at that point. How about you? What, what do you do? Because I, I think you're probably going to be a little bit smarter about this than I was. No, well, I think I did the same thing. Like I started doing this stuff when I was in end of high school, early college. Like I had like $500 and I was selling on TCG player and I was like, hey, 
whatever i made 50 bucks and like i never calculated shipping or fees you know i was like yeah hey, yeah well i made 50 this is 50 i didn't have before um um so i've gone from that into now having like an actual licensed business this will be my first year consulting with a cpa for tax season which it, it, and granted it's not overly complicated but um it's something now that i'm just trying to pay more attention to as far as reinvestment i have not uh i have technically taken one withdrawal this year because i used my <gasps> wrong card to purchase on accident i used my <laughs> i uh not a big deal i use my like my business card to pay some bill of something i wasn't anyway i just literally picked the wrong card in my wallet but um typically i reinvest everything back into more product um <laughs> So a great example of this is right now, this week I sold, I want to say about $1,200 worth of uh, more Ancient Muse. I've gone through so many of these damn cards, hundreds. I have one more shipment. I think I will have totaled over like 1,500 or something or 1,200 Ancient Muse um, with like buying at 20 and selling. My peak, I was selling them at 60, so 300%. And mm -hmm. now the market's back down to about 42 uh, on top of all of my other graded submissions and, and some of the, the other fun stuff. Um, but I'm skilled enough, I think, to identify cards that are probably underpriced and trying to have an understanding of like, okay, if I can make 30%, like you're saying, uh, sell something, whatever, 30 to 50, the money I take back in is then immediately just redeployed to buy more stuff. One, from a, a tax perspective that allows you to uh, uh, not, not necessarily, not, it, it allows for tax avoidance because you're reinvesting that and you're thus now incurring more expenses. Cost, yeah. Yeah, expenses are then written off. Uh, it's very important if you are making that jump from backpack vendor into like real business, you can write off everything. Next year, I'm writing off phone bill, I'm writing off everything because <laughs> um, you can, right? Like, and you should. Um, so that's basically been been it and i've just been developing uh so buying collections i have a local shop that literally left a voicemail for me yesterday um that wants me to go pick up in a bunch of stuff a couple people in the dms a couple people in emails so i now have enough supply um that or i have enough uh, opportunities to be able to purchase collections and purchase stuff uh, that the the bottleneck is now going back onto selling and previously as we talked it's not it's actually not that difficult to sell stuff in the TCG industry, right? If you're, as long as you're low, it's going to move relatively oh, yeah. quickly. Um, so now I'm kind of trying to figure out, well, do I want to just aggressively churn everything as fast as possible? Which the answer is normally yes. Um, <clears throat> the one thing that I think I've, I've been writing in, the, in this article and I've been lying for weeks. At some point, this thing's coming out. It's almost done. But the uh, TCG people... People in the TCG industry, um, I think, are in a very unique position because we can't really afford to have 10% gross profit per year. A traditional portfolio manager, like if they can, uh, uh, you know, hit, if they can beat the index, the index assuming a 7 or 8%, we mm -hmm. have 12% year. That's fantastic. 12% in, in the, you know, in TCG hobby and this basically the, the equivalent of like an extremely small market cap is horrible. Like, you know, if you're not like doubling your money in a full year, like, what are you doing? Um, but we are in a unique position where you're not only um, acting as investors to some extent in your collectible hobby, but you're also the conduits for business for other collectors. So you're making money for people who want to go long-term on very chase cards and high-end cards. 
but you're also someone where it's like, oh, I bought, um, just for example, like, hey, I, I came across an unlimited PSA 10 Charizard that someone wants to buy. I can just buy this and hold it. And if I think it's going to go up, like, I'll just keep it on the books for two years. Mm -hmm. Should you do that? Probably not. Is it a viable business decision that many people in our industry do? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I, I really love that you mentioned card churn because I was actually having discussions about this when somebody actually got me to talk about fundamentals and basics. And I didn't realize how unintuitive it is that you want churn over profit almost. Obviously, you want profit, but they really should be like a handshake when you think about it. Yeah. Like I would, and obviously, you want everything to be profitable, but you actually mentioned this too. If I sell a card at a 20% loss, and like, obviously I don't want it to be at a loss, but not only do I now have that liquidity back, but now that is a cost that I have incurred against. Yeah, exactly. It's like, a, <laughs> it's like the smallest freaking bonus you can get, but it is there and something to be aware of. Uh, but really churn, churn is everything when it comes to reinvestment, because I don't care if you have $50,000 locked up in like Pokemon cards, if they are just sitting in your drawer that's not real money. And it's no, exactly. so important. It's so important to cycle it, cycle it, cycle it, not only so that you always have an out in case you like need to fire sale for whatever reason, but just for just the sake of consistency again and again and again. Um, and then something that I, I've always done too, is I, I have it tied into my direct finance, like direct financial. So I know how much like I'll spend on like uh, food, like takeout or how much like, I'll spend on hobbies. Like Mint or something? No, I do it on my own spreadsheet because I used uh, a little library called Tesseract, which pulls apart my PDF of my bank statement because I'm weird and nerdy. Oh, uh, okay. But it breaks, <laughs> it'll break apart my purchases by basically predefined segments because I shopped at really consistent places because I'm boring. Um, but then I can compare that every month against what I'm not only spending magic on, or sorry, TCGs, uh, apologies, uh, but what I was spending last month or what was I spending this month of last year or the year prior. And you can really see that snowball effect and being aware of that. And it also shows you, I can see directly how much I put in this month into it because what I've sold is probably what I bought three months ago. Yeah. So keeping aware of that and knowing that, okay, so I, you know, I have just for the sake of argument, you know, 5,000 that came in this month and I only put 3,500 in. That's great. That means I made 1500, but that doesn't mean I made necessarily 1500 of profit. I made 1500 of profit this month, but when you get down to a more granular level, but I think when you do think about reinvestment, you do have to be a little bit more broad. I think it's just easier. It's, I think it's just better because it's easier. Uh, obviously, I'm not professional by any means, but uh, I like to go granular and I really like to go granular because then I, you can do some really cool analysis and, and deep seated research to try and get more efficient in what you buy and sell. But just for being aware base, it really is just what's coming in, what's going out, and it really does become time dependent. So uh, I know any time that I take a break on pulling in inventory, I'm not going to feel it for another three months. And that's really important to keep in mind because I know in three months, that means I'm either going to have to scramble to put more in or be okay with taking a step back, which you never really want to do. So just something to keep in mind. Yeah. Um, I think similar to you, this is, so uh, 2020 is the year I, uh, so yeah, I started going by rainy day collectibles, obviously rainy day collectibles is now legally its own entity. It's an LLC. 
And with that, it has its own bank account, um, has its own credit card. I haven't, I don't just for just to have, I guess, um, all of the PayPal uh, email addresses, like all associated with the business. So I don't even mix my personal money with the business, which has given me a bunch of leverage because now, you know, if, you, if you're living off your business, that's certainly great and wonderful and the goal for many people. But I find that until you've really hit and whatever your number is, my number is a million. Um, until I've hit a million dollars in sales, I am more confident that I will be able to aggressively compound uh, my money and work towards that goal if I don't ever withdraw. Because if I'm trying to pay my rent off of this, and thankfully it doesn't take me too much time because most of the stuff I'm dealing with isn't sealed and graded. So it's really clean. It's really uh, pretty straightforward. Um, I don't feel the need to have to dip into those funds because every time you withdraw is pulling away potential for you to make more money in the future. Um, there's also a weird conversation that I hear uh, from a, a people who, who, who really, it feels like they don't know what they're doing. And it's a conversation around taxes. Have you ever heard this where like people are like, I don't want to make more money because then I'll end up paying more taxes. That was actually, weirdly enough, one of the first things that I was quote unquote taught when I entered it and it's bullshit, but it's yes. Really that, <laughs> no, it's, it's really bad because it's like it taxes, like don't let the tail wag the dog, right? Like, <laughs> if, you're, if you're paying more taxes, that means that things are going really well. It's not like, oh, I don't want to make an extra hundred grand this year because I'll have to pay 30 more, you know, 30 K in taxes. It does it does though kind of go hand in hand with the effort that you want to put into it and your knowledge of the space it's, but it's, true. it's not a general rule at all it's true and i will note that there's a big difference um previous to this i would consider myself uh before the before i like actually dive dove, dove into the business i would be what most people are is just like collector investor right just like kind of backpack vendor um, <laughs> you're having fun uh, and you're just, you know, it's your side project. You enjoy making money, but you're mostly doing it to build value, to build up your collection or, or whatever your goal mm -hmm. is. Um, and the goals for that business model are very different for the goals for the business. What you'll notice is a lot of professional vendors do not ever hold inventory at all. And they especially do not hold high-end long-term stuff because sure, if I buy, if I would have bought this an example, I don't know what the, it, 10 years ago, if you could get a first edition base set PSA 10 Zard for, we'll just say 15 grand. And now 10 years later, you're selling it for 250K or whatever they're going for on eBay. Over the course of 10 years, the, re, the, rea, the reality is like, if you were compounding, if you were, if you're using that money churning and compounding, you would have wait, made way more than $200,000. If you were, if you were confident in your skills, like in your kind of meeting industry standards, effort. Um, but for a collector, that's the perfect thing because they'll just do that. They'll pick, mm -hmm. you know, they'll pick up their their crown jewel, and it's just in their collection for the long term. Um, but just as far as reinvestment goes, like I think, I think that's really a greater conversation about wealth. I listen to like a lot of <clears throat> hedge fund stuff, either from Ray Dalio, Berkshire Hathaway. Um, there was one, what was the one I was listening to? Not Millennium. One of the other best performing hedge funds that's like also invite only, I can't remember. But if, if you read anything like BlackRock or any of like the higher financial um, mm -hmm. hedge funds and mutual funds of the world, right? It's all about just, it's just like trying to outperform the index. 
Like that's all they really care about. And outperforming the index for one to five years is, is very easy. Outperforming the index for 40 years is a completely really different hard. story. Um, so I, I'll often go on Reddit and people will say like, Berkshire Hathaway, you know, didn't beat the index this year. Like, how, why are you even buying that stock? I'm like, dude, <laughs> first of all, do you know how hard it is to do what they've done for like 50 years? You know, let it like, oh no, they had two bad years. Like, I think that- You, you went to Reddit. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you throw it in there now just to like get me to roll my eyes. Because <laughs> it's just, it's, it's so ridiculous, man. It's- I've got one feed on Reddit now and it's Wall Street bets and it gives me everything I need. <laughs> so that's it. Um, how do you approach evaluating inventory? And you know, and this is this is basically the the whole goal of all of your data segments and stuff is trying to figure <laughs> out like what's the best place to buy in as a vendor and put your money to flip. I mean, so for me, this is a two pro so there's a system that I have had in place and one that I'm moving to. So one that I had when I started getting going, just because I wanted to have inventory on hand was I wanted to basically buy in at or below what I knew I could sell it at. Like, even if I listed it after fees and shipping, I want to buy in at that mark. So it's break even no matter what, obviously things can change, but when I buy in, I want it to be at that break even point, which I wasn't very good at when I started. So because I kind of had that understanding, I had to lean into the future because I was still getting good. I was still learning how to buy in at a low price point, which I think is the hardest part for everyone is identifying the right price point to not only buy in, but then to obviously sell at. I see a lot of people who will actually very good at locating good deals, but they always want a higher margin, which is silly because again this goes back to compound interest so for me it was holding inventory for um 90 days to 120 is what i wanted to do and then if i couldn't sell it in that time range i would sell it at whatever it was worth just to churn it and get it back and take another shot in the next three months what i've moved into trying to do now that i've gotten much better at locating um, basically just deals at or below that guaranteed backing uh, is that i have started to i'm not even going to purchase the thing unless I already have a outlet right now at the minimum 25% profit. And so what I'm trying to do now is I'm starting to actually liquidate any on-hand inventory I have at break even or even 10, 15% because that liquidity going back, I know I can better um, basically utilize it now. And by doing that, I'll order the card and by the time it arrives, I've already locked in either a buy list or I have a seller already on the line who wants to buy it and moving away from holding as much as I can, because all I care about is churn at the end of the day. Yep, completely agree. Um, <clears throat> I would pull up a compound interest calculator and I'll, can, and I'll show this in a second, but of the, what's your, what is your high level thoughts between um, the difference in investing in collectibles, doing business activity around collectibles and something simple just like, just like an index fund, right? Just like traditional investment stuff. I think it comes down to the effort that you want to put into it. Like I've mentioned a lot, I, th I think that like I get enjoyment out of the tech side. I get enjoyment out of putting my time and my effort into this. I think if you were, uh, if you are a collector, kind of what you describe with the Charizard and you just want to put your money in something and then in 10 years realize it's worth something, you are wrong. <laughs> 
<laughs> as nicely as I can put that, put it in traditional investments. If that's the way that you want to approach finance and you want to like, just feel like, I guess it's the difference between having the gold brick in your hand under your mattress that is just gaining value versus putting it into something riskier, mm -hmm. something, I guess, more ephemeral that you might understand, not understand as much. But if that's your approach to finance and you want it to be kind of effortless and carefree, totally viable, so usually wiser and outside of the collectible finance area. Um, obviously, that I think you should definitely go with more traditional investments, but with collectibles, I think due to the volatility and the opportunity to, as you said, if you're not doubling your money, what are you doing? There is so much more opportunity if you pay attention versus uh, I think with traditional stocks and investments, the more attention you put in it, the more likely you are to just make mistakes and lose money as opposed to letting that compounding interest build up over time because the risk at that point is minimized of you getting it wrong as opposed to collectibles, it's the inverse. So. If you're going to put money as an investment into collectibles, you need to be willing to put in work and to track it vigorously and not vigorously, you define vigorously, again, you define your own numbers. But I think if you're going into it, thinking of both of them as investments, one is gonna require a lot more effort with a lot more upside. The other one's gonna require a lot less effort with a different kind of upside. Yeah, and I completely agree. Um... It's interesting to me to also follow the behavior of traditional investments. Um, so this year in March, right, you had this massive downturn, um, pandemic starts, uh, shutdowns occur, uh, market tanks, I think, what, 40%, basically. Before we get into the, the conversation about quantitative easing and inflation and all this stuff, like, even if you're, and even if your money fell, We'll use 2008 as a better example. In 2008, same thing, dip happened by 40%. If you would have bought at the height of 2008, the day before the market fell, you still would be up 10 years later. Uh, you know, as if you, if you just never sold, you would still have way more money than, than you would now, right? Like my, my point is, sorry, I'm getting like overstimulated by the, the amount of notifications that I'm getting right now, but um, there's so much opportunity. I think people are always fearful of the market falling and selling. And like, if there's a, like they follow the daily ticker, Amazon's down a hundred dollars, right? Is it, but it's a, it's a, it's a $3,000 share. Who cares if it's down a hundred dollars? Yeah, but I don't want to lose a hundred dollars. And I think we get caught up in these small decisions that really handicap like the macro level potential, like literally just buying, never looking at your balance, just say, I'm going to buy more shares this month. I'm going to buy more shares. I'm going to dollar cost average. Like most people do through their 401k or Roth and put in a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars, whatever your thing is for 30 years, just never think about it. You're, you're way better off than someone trying to time the market and jump in and out. And, and there's some saying, I think if you've, if you had missed five days uh, over the last 10 years, you would have missed 30% of the gains or 40% of the gains or something like that. Uh, and you have people who, to this point, right, they took money out of the market uh, when when the recession happened and they missed all of the game, or pardon me, they took money out of the market in March. They still haven't put the money back in and now they're down. Like now they have to buy in and get less than what they had well, before. Yeah. Even if they were static, they're down yeah. now. Yeah. Um, I, I, like the metaphor, I guess I like to use is it's like um, when Facebook and Twitter, when you have those apps and you see like the one, two, three, four, five, like piling up just turn off the notifications and don't look at it. And like, you'll come back three days later and you'll realize I didn't miss anything. 
But if you, if you don't turn it off, you're going to be like, Oh God, what's going on? What's going on? What did I miss? What did I miss? What did I miss? And it's, it really is kind of that same, like finding Dory kind of mentality of just like, have I met you? Yeah. Kind of thing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'm going to share my screen really quickly. Um, this compounding quick, interest. get his personal information. Yeah. <laughs> this uh, compounding interest calculator. So I was talking earlier, if you would have taken, um, and Ugh. there's there's a lot of stuff up here. But... C E D H, you're a monster. <laughs> yeah. If there are, um, yeah, there's some Alta Fox Capital shareholder stuff. But anyway, it, different conversation. Um, <laughs> if you would have taken um, ten thousand, if you would have bought a PSA ten Charizard ten years ago for ten thousand uh, dollars, it would you would effectively have a quarter of a million dollars today pre-tax. If you would have taken ten thousand dollars. And let's say you could make 10% a month, which I think most people probably can. It's a lot, but if you can make 10% a month for 10 years, it's a lot. Um, I have been able to do that. Granted, this is a long time. If you can make 10% a month for 10 years, you would have almost a million dollars. Now let's say, okay, well, I can't quite make 10%. Let's say you can make, if you have $10,000 of inventory and you can make what, $400 in profit a month? That seems really low, but let's say you can do that. Then, oh, that's not right. Uh... We moved in the wrong direction, lads. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Wait. Uh, monthly calculate. All right. Well, this is a horrible example. We'll say, why does this? All right. I may cut this out. What the hell? Um, what was 10? Switch it. Yeah, switch it back to 10. Oh, no, no. We read the numbers wrong. Count the zeros. Oh. <laughs> okay, you would have 927 million. So maybe that's maybe that's quite hard. Let's say you could make 4%. <laughs> Let, let's say you could make 4%. I like how both of us did the same thing. Like, nah, that can't be right. And I was like, wait a second. <laughs> okay, if you could make 4% a month, which I think in this industry with there's a lot of like guaranteed margins. If you can get in below retail, if you can get in you yeah. know, buy list, like effectively any large vendor is, is selling with a guaranteed margin. Um, you would have $1.1 million over the course of 10 years. Now, if you would have just bought the Charizard, you wouldn't have had to do any work. So there's still uh, an idea for that. You would have had 250,000. If you can make 10, 10%. Now this is 10% a month. This is like this is absolutely incredible. I don't think there are many people who can do this. You'd have almost a billion. Which the other is, thing too, that you have to high. take into account here too, is inflation every year. Inflation will be something that is also competing because that will be another percentage point that is going up over time. But the, I think the, the obvious lesson carries. Yeah. And we can count zeros, numbers, we promise. <laughs> the numbers were slightly off, but you get the idea. Um, I yeah, I mean, honestly, I would honestly, when I think about compounding interest, I've always thought of it as an annual basis. So that monthly does not like that's oof, you said 10% a month, and I was like, that's really solid. But I, even if you do it annually, I think, yeah, I mean, yeah. Even, it, let me see, I'll do the annually off screen here. Annually will be a bit lower, annually will be, be much lower, yeah, 27k. Um, but if you're, that's just if still you, phenomenal. Like, even if you're terrible at this and you are like going in half cocked and you almost don't know what you're doing, if you have some semblance of what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think I can make 
I don't know if I can make 10% a month, right? Obviously that's a bit, bit much. Uh, I would be, a bil- I'd literally be a billionaire if I could do that. Um, but being able to, in, so being able to correctly optimize the inventory that you're buying. So inventory optimization and capital allocation is the goal to all of these things. If you can set up a buy list and buy on margin and sell below retail and make a guaranteed 10 to 15%, you are effectively hitting this number. The other thing too, which is important to note, uh, and we had them on a long time ago, but Tarkin taught me this and I have really learned to flex on it since then. Store credit is your friend. Like if you're confident that that institution will stick around because they are still, their shipping prices might be a little bit higher and sure there might be a little bit of a premium, but you can locate deals all the same on those sites. So if they're going to offer you 30 cents on the dollar, if you are prepared and equipped to be able to maximize that additional percentage, you can, I mean, that is just something that is really, really, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't even know how to describe it. The moment I found out Pokemon bulk goes for $30 per K, I was like, this is easy. (laughs) I was like, this is, you guys don't even know. And I I can't get the the exact details of why, but that's, that is, that is a fairy tale number. I actually have, a thousand on my bookshelf right now being ready to be sent off because it's just like i'm so used to using this stuff as paperweights sure yeah. here's i think i think i saw somebody sell uh, a box of bulk the other day for a different tcg for 25 dollars, and it cost 18 dollars for shipping and they were thrilled yeah, yeah they were thrilled so just a little bit of context for just the demand profile of that but yeah i forgot what i was saying before oh yeah the store credit like if you can reinvest that, and I, I like to do it back into sealed product because that is something that you that is kind of transferable marketplace to marketplace. But when you start buying larger dollar amounts, which can sometimes be hard to do if if you're basing off of cash and you you just you know you don't have that much cash, it's harder to do. But if you can afford to buy three or four cases, that you can message that vendor and just be like, hey, would you be willing to cut me a deal? I really want to give you money. Yeah. Nine times out of ten, you will get a response. Sometimes. Some specific sellers will be like, well, if it's less than $5,000, I'm not getting out of bed. But there are more cases than not wherein they'll be like, okay, I'll give you an additional discount if you'll buy the upper number of what you were thinking. And now you've basically made 40 cents on the dollar of just pure credit, let alone the original profit that you made. And that is really a way. And actually, I was trying to describe uh, store credit to uh, my brother, and I couldn't get away from describing it as almost laundering. Because yeah, to some extent it is money laundering, but it's a conversation for a different time. <laughs> yeah, but it, there are so many tools that you can do to really le- leverage the original dollar that you put into it in the collectible market, which again, be aware of it and really try and optimize your position. And that is not even getting into global markets. That is strictly staying in North America. Yeah. And uh, yeah. The the conversation around store credit is so funny to me because people will just like in December comes they'll just buy list like everything they don't need just to avoid the the tax man because it's unrealized uh, yeah well. uh, stuff which you know it, granted it's not it's not legal it's uh, very it's basically how the industry works um, <laughs> I uh, yeah I I wanted to hit a certain amount of spending power and for me that was about fifteen thousand of just pure straight on hand cash to spend on stuff that I wanted to hit before I started involving in store credit. And then once I hit that, and now I keep that constantly, but now I feel a lot more confident in putting money into, I would call it riskier and definitely 
unrealized because it's not in my bank account and I can't buy dinner with it. So it doesn't count. Um, but yeah, so, but it does come down to that strategy, but it's, I think it's, it's a really, really solid way to, to really exponentially start traveling upwards, especially in collectibles in general, wherein a buy list exists. When you have a pure, just like uh, one, I guess, one-handed marketplace where just buy sell on the same place i feel like you're you're almost forced to sit on inventory um i think obviously with with pokemon when you have two different markets because you have graded and ungraded it's a little different yeah um and but if you did yeah. modern are, are basically different like they should probably be treated differently because they they are now that the price points are so wildly different sure. um but i agree i completely agree it's essentially collection buying. I mean, you want to buy a collection really, really below market, and then you're going to sell it at the cheapest possible point on market prices. So it sells quickly. That is collection buying in a nutshell. And it works because that is proper reinvestment strategy. Yep. Um, one of the things that I've also noticed, so I don't have distributor access yet. And specifically for Pokemon, um, it's very difficult just because it's free money basically um, and there's been all kinds of shortages through the year uh, mvp is obviously one of the the ways that the average kind of retail investor if you will uh can get, can get somewhat of you know can get access i think to a lot of these things um but even mass market right now man like uh going to the pokemon tcg discord you get pinged when anytime something gets you know goes on sale at target so i was buying like i think i bought 50 different tins and granted it's only a couple hundred dollars but 50 tins for half price the one for 9.99 msrp is 19.99 you buy 50 like it's if you hit if you have any hits which i did it's free so, so it's like okay i'll sell the bulk i'll sell the codes and now effectively i have 60 packs that i can either sell at a profit or i can just open them and i hope to get hits and um i did half and half i think i didn't get i don't what else did i get i didn't get much i got the the packs I got I missed you I could have hit evolutions in the EV tins I ordered the wrong tins uh, but I still had a profit <laughs> but the point just being yeah. that like you have so many sourcing opportunities in this modern age through different various discords through personal collections um, on Twitter and email and in person connections I think people really underrate that uh, I you know just making yourself a known customer like going to the yeah. LGSs and buying stuff and being a big spender they're gonna call you. It's really fascinating because it, it's really not exclusive to collectibles. I mean, I have a BJ's membership for a singular reason. That's Pokemon Sealed. Um, but even when I worked for Arizona Ice Tea, there were actually areas in the country where they would utilize Costco as a solid means of distributing to the region in some cases because they sold at distributor pricing. So if you could just make it their problem, they'll solve the logistics and get it to the area. And that's all you need to do. Um, it's not just collectibles that do this. Like there really, are, the world works, really. yes, like there are very, like this is not exclusive to us and it is not to be undervalued because those are huge companies that are doing it. Uh, and they, it's still viable for them. That's how, that's how real estate works. That's how, I mean, like if, if you're, if you're in a, a, a decent sized city or not even that, if you're just in any area with more than like 5,000 people and you're mm -hmm. one of the large, uh, you know, real estate, owners or moguls in the area like anytime a building comes up for sale you're going to be one of the first person that they contact because they need the money right mm -hmm. people don't 
I think in collectibles, it's very easy to over romanticize the asset that you're holding and forget that it's just an asset at the end of the day. It's just some means of storing monetary value. Now, the connection that you have with it through a game piece or nostalgia is where people kind of get tied up. That's also where the appreciation comes from on their asset. But at the end of the day, it's still a means of holding value. Um, the same way that, you know, whatever, the, the same way that stocks are, the same way that anything is. Um, there's the reason that Berkshire Hathaway and by extension Warren Buffett get offered deals that no one else in the world gets access to. Why? Because they have 150 billion in cash, right? Like it's not the same thing. <laughs> They've done a couple of things right over the years. Yeah, similar to the startup scene, right? You can't, you just can't walk up and knock on someone's door and ask if you can invest in their startup. There are entire networks that are that are established and like for all into, really, it's kind of predetermined. Like these are the hundred people that I know that are good within this industry and I want to do business with, that I want to have a relationship with over the next ten years. I would much mm-hmm. rather have these people invest than have you know ten randos who just happen to have money. Like the conversations. Uh, around business and around kind of operations, I think really do transcend transcend just the transaction, uh, and is is much more about relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you're talking to a keyboard cowboy, so. <laughs> well, but I mean, I, even in your job, right? Your job is still all about relationship yeah. building, right? You're you're interpreting the data and assisting people with problems. Yeah, I would be lying too if I were to say that I didn't even accidentally do it. <laughs> For for other TCGs, I mean, it was just literally, I mean, you also identified too. I mean, you can hear somebody talking. I was talking about this with somebody the other night. It's like, you can understand within like three minutes of listening to any random stranger, do they know what they're talking about? Yeah. And it be like, it, it is the world's easiest, like AB test, like litmus, whatever you want to call it. Like, are you an idiot or do you have a clue? And you can literally go forward from there. We talked about this in the past, but I think my favorite, um, my favorite, uh, I, don't, I guess, I don't know if it's a phrase, but my favorite, like the thing that I was always taught is when you speak to someone who is an expert in their field is to start the conversation at a four out of 10 level rather than a one out of 10 level. Cause you cut away the first five minutes of like, like valid fundamentals. Tests. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, you know what I know. Like, oh, have you ever heard of it? Like, they're, oh, okay, you're on, like, level five or whatever it is, right? Like, level seven. So if I approach someone who's an economist or I approach someone who's a senior engineer or, like, you know, a tech lead or whatever it is, I don't know all of the things that they know, but this is where my competency lies, and then we can start the conversation here. And the same way you do it with, you know, businesses and collectibles, like, there's a big, there's a much different conversation of people who are entering. The reason I feel comfortable getting into Pokemon, one, because I've, I've known TCGs for 10 years. Like I know how all the models work. I know exactly what it is. I may not be as familiar in the intimate details of like what this year's set is or what the tournament's mm-hmm. is, but being able to match patterns and models is, is all that really matters. So the point is just, if you can jump in and say, hey, you know, I'm not, there's a big conversation difference between someone who's just getting into TCGs and then saying, hi, I would like to invest, you know, how do I invest versus mm-hmm. someone saying, oh, I've done X, Y, you know, I've done A through F, like, what am I missing kind of thing? Yeah, I will, I will point out, and I'm sorry if this is a question that you have, but you are at a one out of 10 level. This thing, this question, I always hear it and I always just go, you shouldn't even be here yet is where should I put my money yeah. and or when should I sell? 
if you have to ask that question, you have, you've literally just identified yourself as being like the smallest thing in the room because <laughs> you clearly have no idea and nobody can answer that but you. And if you don't have that understanding when you enter a conversation, I would I would bet I would bet you a solid tenor that um, any advice that you get from that question asked is not going to be reliable. And this is one of the many reasons why I avoid Reddit. Because uh, I really just, I really just feel like it is so, and I feel bad because obviously this is where people will go to to ask their first question. But like, it really is something I think specifically for collectibles and any finance. Like, if you are asking a group of strangers or people that you've never met, where should I put my money? It doesn't even if it's five dollars. What are you doing? No, <laughs> like, yeah, and and it's 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 the reason that a lot of the I don't know how do you politely say this. It's the reason why a lot of high-performing groups are often secretive. Just meaning like for you to invest in Bridgewater, you can't, again, you can't just walk up and say, hey, here's my money. You have to, it's invite only, right? Like these are things that, the reason it's invite only is because you have to at least have a level of understanding that of how everything works. Like we're trying to beat the market this way. So the event that a hedge fund misses the mark and is down 10% on the year, not all of the investors aren't screaming and running for the doors thinking that the mm-hmm. world is over. Uh, that's the same thing of like all of the invite only discords, all of the, only, you know, invite only Facebook group. Like there's a lot and it's not, you know, people are going to be like, Oh, it's the secret society. No, it's not a secret society. It's just people who I think respect their time and want to be around people who are doing similar things. It's also, it, it's at the end of the day, it's a zero sum game. When you are in an open marketplace profit that you yourself are not earning is going to somebody else. Probably like nine times out of 10, if you are not, yes. And if you discover something new, hats off to you, you've made it anyways, but like nine times out of 10, and especially when you start revealing your methodology of how you're going about something, you're revealing it to competitors. So it's not like they're, they're like working behind the strings and like, I mean, they are, but they're not cheating by any means. They, they figured out a methodology to produce profit and revenue that clearly their competitors haven't. So why would they offer that? I mean, we can talk about open source knowledge, but when it comes to money and putting food on the table, that all that theory stuff, all that stuff that sounds really cool and like a classroom, I think just goes out the window. Yeah. Uh, I don't begrudge it at all. I think that's the way the world kind of needs to be to some to some degree because it. I, I don't know. Yeah, I'm going down a rabbit hole. No, no, and you're right. And the last thing I want to add before we wrap up here. Um, the one thing about reinvesting your money and capital allocation and inventory management and this greater conversation is you're going to realize that like people mess up all the time and the people who are successful have just messed up more than you. Like there's that, there's that saying, and and again, not to go too, (laughs) too philosophical, but the master has failed more, more times than the, uh, whatever apprentice has tried. And it's like, yeah, okay. Like you bought the wrong thing. Like, okay, I bought this, I bought this garbage set of a thousand, I spent a thousand dollars or $10,000 on something that wasn't, didn't perform as I hoped it would. Okay. You sell it and then you get back $8,000. You take a $2,000 loss and you just do it again. Like you just keep you, now, you know, something you didn't know before. It's always so baffling to me that when someone loses once they have, they have a misstep that they suddenly now just lose all faith in what they're doing and want to completely give up. That doesn't make any sense. And as someone I, I know who's in tech, you probably fail at something every day because everyone does, right? Like that's 
you're like, I what? cannot relate hard enough to that. The amount of times I've seen somebody at work or just in like in friendships, they'll try something once and it won't go their way. And then they'll just be like, well, I just, I don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm a horrible engineer or I'm a horrible, you know, business person. No, no, no. That This is the whole game. This is the whole game. You're supposed to mess up and everyone knows you're going to mess up. So why are you shorting yourself? Like, you have to try and this is the whole reason it's not easy like this is the reason that people listen to people who are successful sometimes you just get lucky and it works your way but most times you're you're balancing this axis of trying to figure out what the best objective is with 50 different options and four of them may be good but only one of them may be great that's yeah. the whole game and the, like, the other thing too is i find it very important too is like with these expectations that you're describing here when we, when we are investing our own money in collectibles there's one person that you're answerable to, and that's the person who owns the money, and that's you. <laughs> if it's in a workplace environment or if it's something like that, and you owe an expectation to somebody else, I get there, I get that pressure a little bit. I still think it's gonna happen, but I get that pressure. But if you're the judge, jury, and executioner, or whatever you wanna call that little linear pathway, and you get it wrong and you understand it, but you're also the one who can decide whether you do it again or not. And sometimes, you know, fire is hot, but come on. And I don't think, I think in, uh, <clears throat> if you're around people who are high performers, I think that, I think the key to being someone who is a higher performer is that you are just a very good problem solver. It's not that you have all of the answers, it's that you know how to approach problems to find the answer. That's it. It's just, you can put down the pieces to find the way that you need to, you know, that you, they define what you're looking for. So anyway. you got you got so much better sayings than I do. I think the one saying that I always say is nine times out of ten, if you think somebody's intentionally trying to screw you, they're just incompetent, and that's the most <laughs> uplifting one that I got. That's a good one. That's a good one. Um, any final thoughts for this week? Uh, you want no. To hit on? No, no, I don't. Not that I can think of, other than I just recently bought like three boxes. I didn't even realize, I have mentioned this before, of Watsi's uh, printed Star Wars cards from like 2002 to 2005 or something like that. Uh, and I've just been loading up on that and cracking it shamelessly because it's purely for nostalgia. I got to get a full hollow set of Attack on the Clone. So that's, I, I feel like we're seeing a lot more of that kind of like what you were saying too about um, like Pokemon's going up. Why haven't other TCGs been going up? I do think they have been. It's just a question of how sustainable is it? Is it just people buying other TCGs because it's the thing in the market now? I think it's mostly speculation. Like Harry Potter, I think is 5X over the past three months. And it's not because people like Harry Potter. It's that they're just moving. Again, we go back to the conversation of capital allocation. If you can then take the risk and say, hey, you know what? I made $50,000. Let's take 5000 and put it into yeah. some of these speculative uh, TCGs like Harry Potter, Star Wars, The Simpsons game, and just see what happens. And then speculators start to create movement on the item. Then people see it. And then you now have different varying levels of FOMO and blah, blah, blah. But regardless, uh, I think it's fun. If you're in it just as a fan and it's fun, that's sweet. But got to love Yoda, man. There you go. You're going to get it graded now. That's the real question. Oh, oh God, no. The centering on these things are... <laughs> I, I never looked at centering before, okay? Yeah, Thank yeah. you very much. I look at literally everything now from Magic to Yu-Gi-Oh to Star Wars cards. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, man, that centering is ass. That's just... Oh. Uh, before, I would have looked at it. I was like, that's Gem Min. What are you talking about? Yep. How your, about you? Oh, go um, ahead. Um, let me think here. Sorry, I have my whiteboard marker. Um no final thoughts no that's about it 
I've been writing an article about this for three weeks. I'm sorry. <laughs> at some point it will come out. It's all, I'm just, I've had a lot of stuff with work and I'm just, in all honesty, I'm just oh, Preach. Hey, doggy. Yeah, that's um, really. <laughs> um, otherwise, anything you're doing outside of the hobby this week? Uh, yeah. For Christmas? No, no, no. We actually traveled for Thanksgiving and I got COVID tested four times. I'm done with that. <laughs> I'm so done with that. Um, the, and that thing up your nose. Just, yeah, uh, it's bad. It's bad. The first, well, there's, it depends on who's doing it because the first two guys made me cry. I'll be completely no, I, shameless. Yeah, and then like the, the last guy was just like, there you go. You're good. And I was like, that's it. I'm not even like wincing yet, man. Like you, you sure you got enough? Every time so. I go with my girlfriend, she walks away. She's like, that wasn't that bad. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> man, it's something about nasal pain. It's just it's like, horrible. it, it just stings. It's, it's but... a necessary evil in 2020, but oh man. <laughs> No, no. For me, it's uh, just more of the same. I've been just procrastinating, like just like nobody's business, uh, picking up League of Legends again because the, they did the new item change and it's it's been getting me into it. I'm just killing time now. And I, I'll look at it and be like, I've been doing this for two hours. This is so unproductive. And I'm like queuing up for another one. I'm like, doesn't matter. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't played. I stopped playing Dota a couple months ago. Uh, my computer went down, actually. And I haven't got back into it. Partially because I know I just shouldn't, uh, and partially also because business has been going well, which is, is something that's actually good. Um, it's, a bit, it's been a little bit busier, but that's it. I don't, if I, dude, I'll play, I have, dude, I have like 2,000 hours. I have some 2,000 hours in Dota or 5,000. I have like six months of my life has been spent playing Dota, so. I'm like Yeah, your summer months, I remember you were playing a lot. I haven't seen you on. Yeah, I need to stay away. Um, let, me, <laughs> let me think here. Last thing outside of the hobby for Christmas. I am looking to have some time. I have not bought gifts yet. I have probably this next week to do that. Um, other than that, no, I'm trying to, I'm off from Christmas to New Year's, which is really nice. So oh, that is nice. That's when I'm trying to get that RFID stuff down. If I can find the part that I've been looking for for six months. Um, and then just chilling, man. Take, take some time and then bookkeeping i'm like not looking forward to that end of year bookkeeping shouldn't be too bad but oh <laughs> yeah a lot of a lot of like the, the original spreadsheets that i put together i put together in 2018 and i did it two years out and i was like there's no way i'll still be like into this in two years and so i'm just watching that like december 31st deadline coming up and be like mm. <laughs> <laughs> cool cool yeah. All right, well, this has been another episode of the Collect and Spec podcast. I am one of your hosts, Zakiel, otherwise known as Rainy Day Collectibles Online. You can find me here on YouTube, or you can also find this podcast, um, the audio version of this podcast on Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts, about a dozen different players, um, as well as Twitter and Instagram. Chris, if people want to follow you and your content, where can they do that? Uh, you guys can find me at Wolf of Tin Street on Twitter. I'm also constantly on Discord. You guys can find me on Patreon over at the Band Community. Uh, we are actually allowing new patrons again, which has been a very complicated process, but I'm very glad we're, we're seeking the, uh, the end of the tunnel on that. So uh, if you guys want to hop in over there, feel free. Um, love to have you, and you can at me anytime you want. Other than that, I'm probably in a lot of TCG finance discords. You could probably just do the at wolf and you, you'll probably find me. Cool. Cool. Um, all right. Well, this has been another episode of the collect and spec podcast next week. Hopefully should be our collectors universe. I don't know when it'll be, but we'll have that discussion and I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be a good one.
So anyway, guys, thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Oh, cheers, guys. <laughs>